0: Well, hi, everybody. This is Phil Town.
1: This is Danielle Town.
0: And we're here for Invested, the podcast about getting invested in your life and finances and making money.
1: Yeah, making money. (laughs) It's about being mindful about your money, knowing what's happening, not sticking your head in the sand, taking it out of the sand and looking around at what's going on in your life.
0: But through a very specific pair of glasses that we're looking at. So if the world is sort of like dependent on the color glasses you have on you see your red sunglasses you see a red world we're looking through Warren Buffett Charlie Munger Ben Graham glasses yeah at the world of finance yes we are we're looking through those lenses and we're perceiving the world a certain kind of way from the view of what i think some people call value investing but it's not really the right name for it
1: yeah you've said that to me before i think we need to come up with another name for it because i'm a little unclear as to what it actually is, if it's I've, not value investing,
0: I've seen it called GARP. What's that? Growth at a reasonable price, which also <laughs> isn't the truth about this. Essentially, and this is where I think people get really off on what it is we're trying to do. Essentially, what we're trying to do is buy $10 and only pay $5 for it. And we want to do that where we have enormous amount of certainty obviously we can't have total certainty but we have a great deal of certainty about the value of this business we know it's worth as close as we can we know it's worth $10
1: is that not value investing
0: that is not value investing
1: what's value investing
0: value investing is buying really low pe companies that and this PE, is what
1: price to earnings price
0: to earnings yeah and this is what ben graham invented was the idea That you could buy a large number of very low P.E. companies, companies that were selling for, in some cases, less than their cash that they have sitting in the bank. And you could buy up a bunch of these and some of them would fail and some of them would succeed. And overall, you'd end up doing really well.
1: Oh, so the value was just that the stock price was low compared to what the company was actually doing.
0: Yeah, pretty much. And
1: it didn't have anything to do with like... The management and the intrinsic competitive advantage of that company, and all the stuff that Charlie Munger talks about.
0: really didn't have that much to do with that. Got it. It was pretty much an evaluation of the numbers. That And uh, Ben Graham, of course, if you want to really dig into this, he wrote a book in 1934 with David Dodd called Security Analysis, which is still in print. Very, very valuable book to read if you're really into the numbers.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a laugh a minute.
0: It's about inch and a half of laugh in a minute. <laughs> And um, and Ben Graham himself said in 1949 when he came out with his new book, Intelligent Investor, that he pretty much was over all of that way of looking at businesses. Really? He got over it, yeah. And he really kind of took it to a more simple level.
1: Hmm.
0: I think what he found out was that when you dial into the numbers so deeply... Um, at some point, you've just got too many things going on to really make a good judgment about the business. And then Charlie Munger took it to the next step in 1960, so five, you know, 10 years later, and said it's better to have a wonderful business at a fair price than a fair business at a wonderful price. In other words, I don't care how good the value is relative to um, what you're paying if the business itself isn't very good.
1: Graham, that's what Graham was doing. That's what Graham was doing. He was buying fair businesses at wonderful prices. Yeah, he
0: used to call them cigar butt businesses. Because in the (laughs) Depression, people would throw cigars into the street (laughs) when they were done with them. And you could pick it up and get a couple puffs for free. And those were the kind of business he was buying, cigar butt businesses. He bought 200 at a time.
1: Whoa. Yeah,
0: so very different view of the world very different than what Buffett ended up with. And
1: yet that's still considered to be classic value investing?
0: Classic value investing. and A lot of the people who I, I respect very much are out there buying 70, 80, 100, 150 businesses. All of them look like they're on sale from a value investor's point of view. But when you're buying that many businesses, if you see someone you admire and you want to know if they're our kind of investor, meaning a, a Munger-Buffett type investor all you have to do is look at what percentage of their portfolio they have in their top 10 stocks and if it's under 50 60 percent they're probably not digging in deep enough on on what they're doing and they're they're diversifying across a lot of companies so mm-hmm.
1: the,
0: the mistakes won't bother them
1: we need we need Better name for this. You guys, write in to questions at investedpodcast.com and give us your ideas. We bet we need a better name for this. Wait a second.
0: I, I have a name for this. I have a trademark well, name for this.
1: Lay it on us. This
0: is called rule number one investing. <laughs> <laughs> what are you laughing about? <laughs> this is my trademarked hard to come by, deeply thought out name of this kind of investing. We call this rule number one investing because Warren Buffett said there's only two rules to investing. Rule number one, don't lose money. And rule number two, don't forget rule number one. So the reason we call this rule number one investing, what Buffett does, what Munger does, what I try to do, is that in order to focus on rule number one, you have to basically buy things that are very unlikely to go down below what you've paid for them. In other words, what what Manesh Pabrai calls a free lottery ticket. There's no downside and it's all upside if somebody gives you a lottery ticket for free. Now, the chance of making money might be a billion to one, but the chance of losing money is also very low.
1: Rule number one investing.
0: Thank you very much. What does
1: does Warren Buffett call it? Does he call it Buffett style investing? I'm pretty sure Warren
0: Buffett doesn't have a clue I exist.
1: Or Omaha investing?
0: (laughs) he? (laughs) He, He doesn't give it a name. Although he's called it value investing from time to time, he's also said it isn't really value investing. Hmm. So I don't know that he's really given it a name. You can tell us if he has. I'm not aware that he has. Um, And Charlie Munger certainly doesn't think it's value investing. So we're going to call it rule number one type investing. So what
1: we need to do is support your trademark and spread this name across the globe so that everyone starts using it.
0: Yeah, and then I'll get a phone call from Warren Buffett's lawyer (laughs) telling me to back off. From what? From your own trademark? No. Well, that would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? No, 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 no. Actually, that'd be a thrill to be able to talk to his lawyer. At least (laughs) somebody knew we were out there, it'd be kind of cool. So we need to talk some more about how you figure out if you know, what a company's worth. If if this is so important to whatever kind of investing it is we're doing, if what we're trying to do is verify that the value of this business is 2x what we're paying for it, right? Did the 2x thing throw you off?
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay.
1: I think it, what you usually say is that you want to buy it at half of its sticker price. Yes. Look at me with the lingo, the rule number one trademarked lingo. That's
0: pretty good. I'd say that's pretty good. But you'll discover that the math works out, that you could say it the way I said it. And it's the same thing.
1: Oh, I get it. So I get you, it. It just took me a minute. Okay,
0: so we're looking to figure out how to do that. And obviously, we can't figure out how to do that unless we have a pretty good idea what this thing is worth as a business, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, we can do lots of things. We, Warren Buffett in the 1950s was converting stock into, I think, cocoa beans and then, or coffee beans, some kind of bean, and then taking the beans in bags, you'd collect the beans in bags and drive them over to a place where he could dump the beans and they would pay him money for the bean bags, for the bags of beans. And it was a pure arbitrage deal. In other words, he was converting the stock into beans at, let's say, $10 a bag,
1: Wait, I'm sorry. What does converting stock into beans mean? Oh,
0: it means that if you own
1: <laughs> what, are,
0: what? Okay, fair enough. <laughs> in the 1950s if you own and I might have this a little off, but you'll get the general idea. If you own a share of this some company XYZ. Yeah. You could take the share in to the company's headquarters or to the dock where they had their what they owned.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Which was beans. Okay. And you could convert that share of stock into beans.
1: Okay. Right? Really?
0: Yeah. And you could convert it so that effectively if you paid $10 for a share of stock and you got a bag of beans for it, Mm -hmm. you'd pay $10 for the bag of beans. Mm -hmm. But then you could drive the beans down across to another dock and sell them at the current bean price, which was $15 a bag of beans. Okay. (laughs) So Buffett literally was hauling beans across town. In Omaha. And I think this was actually in New York. Oh. It might have been Omaha.
1: It feels like an Omaha thing to do. And I'm
0: sure I've got some of the facts wrong about the story, but the general principle holds, and that is he was converting stock into a commodity at a low price and then selling the commodity at the market price. Okay. And it was called arbitrage. And basically what it means is that you're buying one buying a thing, a commodity in one market, selling it in another market for a better price and collecting the difference as profit. And arbitrage is what helps set market prices of things like oil and gas and gold all around the world, Mm -hmm. is that that's why the market price in London is almost exactly what the market price is in New York at any given moment, because there are these arbiters who will watch to see if the price changes in London, enough that they can buy in London and sell in New York and make money, and they will do that immediately until the price gets back to parity. Hmm. So this is an example, bring this all up, because it's an example of a Rule 1 deal. In what way? In that you're buying something worth $10 for a lot less, and then converting it to the $10. So that's really the essence of Rule 1 style investing. And a lot of people get this confused with the idea that, you know, it has to be a wonderful business, has to be um, something that has years of great growth and years of great earnings. That's not really true. I wrote about it like that in Rule Number One in my books, because I want to give you guys a good starting place as a novice investor. But at any time you can buy something for five dollars, knowing it's worth ten and sell it for 10, you've just done a rule number one deal. Okay. But the key to that is knowing you can sell it for 10, right? So what made Ben Graham different than a rule number one investor is that he would buy 200 things, hoping he could sell many of them for 10, right? He'd buy them all for five and hope he could sell most of them for 10,
1: Yeah, well, what you typically say is the only way to have, obviously you can't be certain, but to have a high degree of predictability about the future growth of the company is to look at the backwards growth of the company.
0: That's not the only way. It's It's, not the
1: only way, but it's what you typically say.
0: In fact, it doesn't really tell you what the future is going to be. It just gives you a good indication that if the future is like the past... Yeah. Then it's going to be a straight road. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, if we have no history at all of this company, then we're really on our own in terms of figuring out what the future is going to be. But if you know that you can sell the beans this afternoon for 10 and buy them today for five, then you can do that deal. You don't need any past history.
1: Okay, that you seems a little saying? dangerous, but
0: well it just depends on whether you know you can sell them for your 10. Certainty, yeah. yeah, it depends on your certainty. Like one of our students, I think I mentioned before, buys mink coats at garage sales and sells them on eBay. So she relies on her skill set, her education and her knowledge of being able to know the value of a used mink coat well enough to know what she can pay and still make a very good profit. Mm-hmm. So it's about knowledge, right? Ultimately, so if if you know that the beans are going to be selling for twenty dollars down the road, and you can buy them here at this place for ten, if you know that, then that's a rule one deal. You go do that deal. Edward, I mean, think about just some people make a pretty good little second income from uh, buying old army vehicles and fixing them up. There was a guy <laughs> in in Fairfield, Iowa, that did that all the time. Really? Yeah, and he. Built up a body of knowledge and experience, knowing what he could pay mm-hmm. in the market for an old army truck or a Jeep, what it would cost him to fix it up, how much time it would take, and then what he could sell it for. So he would always know enough about what he was doing to know with a high degree of certainty. Obviously, there always can be something you didn't catch, right?
1: Yeah. Well, the difference between that situation and um, and the like, looking backwards at the years and years of financial numbers is just experience.
0: It is experience. And, it, and I mean, I, I don't want to set anybody off on, a, on a, a feeling like, wow, this is going to really be a hard to do. But I'll tell you a story of one of the first deals I saw done. It was when I was just first getting started, a guy um, converted all of his real estate in Oakland that he'd built up over 30 years of buying real estate He converted all of it to cash and then rolled it into an exchange for a commercial building in Utah. And he thought he knew what he was doing from 30 years of residential real estate Hmm. in Oakland Mm -hmm. to be able to um, properly analyze a commercial building in a small town in Utah. Sure. And he didn't. Mm -hmm. And he lost it all.
1: It was that different. Yeah. Interesting. It was
0: that different. So... You, you, The key thing that I think Charlie Munger says over and over again about this kind of investing is it's not enough to know what you know.
1: <laughs> you
0: have to also know what you don't know.
1: Yeah, which is the hardest thing. Yep. Now it's look at this so guy. Hard.
0: He thought he knew real estate. What he knew was Oakland Residential Real Estate. And he wasn't able to realize that commercial real estate in a different state in a small town was a whole different thing. He didn't realize what the dangers were. And the key thing is he didn't know what he didn't know. Had he been, let's say, a little more conservative in his in his view of what he knew, if he had said, well, I know Oakland real estate, but I know residential real estate. So I feel like I'm in a pretty good position to evaluate, let's say, Uh, San Bernardino real estate which is outside of LA like Oakland is outside of San Francisco yeah. or Berkeley real estate which is right next door to Oakland maybe had he taken a small step he would have been okay because what he didn't know um, might not have been critical but what he knew was enough to do a good deal when he stepped completely into from a big city into a small town in Utah, he changed the dynamic dramatically. And when he went from a residential uh, real estate to a commercial real estate where he had to rent it out to restaurants and offices, he had no idea that, let's say, a, a recession that was affecting that one town in Utah, maybe they lost their biggest employer, would wipe him out. He had no no view of that whatsoever. He didn't know that he didn't know that.
1: Well, you've got to notice the the changes in what you're doing. You've got to notice that what you're doing is different than what you've done previously. And that just takes awareness. That yep. just takes some thought about what is happening that's different. Yep. I mean, in that situation, it doesn't really seem that hard to make a list of the stuff you don't know, which is essentially a list of variables.
0: Yep. Well, it isn't that hard, but you have to be aware that that issue needs to be dug into. So Munger has a couple of more things. Well, one more thing that's really important. He said that you kind of in order to get at this idea that you might not know what you don't know. He said you have to invert, always invert your argument. So you take the argument that I'm going to move from residential real estate in Oakland to commercial real estate in Ogden, Utah. And I am going to now give all the reasons why that should fall apart. And Charlie said that by the time he's done looking at a new company to buy into, he knows the reasons not to buy it better than the people who are telling him not to buy it.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: So he, he, he digs in so that there's there's nothing that he doesn't know that can come and bite him by doing this inversion process. So we're going to come on to that. I'll show you guys down the road what Charlie does to do an inversion, which is pretty cool. I mean, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to reinvent all this stuff. This is all out there for you to learn. It's just a matter of a series of steps to do. But we're going to start this process by looking into figuring out a way to know the value of a business.
1: Yeah, we've been talking about Chipotle's financial numbers. Yep. And we left off with me trying to get an answer to what on earth earnings You were so
0: disappointed.
1: Earnings per share growth rate was. I was so I was just ready for an answer, you know? Yeah. I was just ready for an answer.
0: And it got a little confusing when we started to say, well, the the projected earnings per share growth rate isn't just the past earnings per share growth rate.
1: Right. I mean, it reminded me why I find this so exhausting, because I feel like I'm decently intelligent. Like, if you would just be like, "Here is, here are the four things you need to learn as far as calculations. Right. I feel like I could go learn them. Right. I'm not worried about that. It's when you start saying... There are subsets to each of these things. And by the way, there's no answer to it. You have to make a judgment call about it. <laughs> that's when I get nervous because I am not um, comfortable enough with financial statements, with numbers to make any sort of judgment call Right. about any of it. Right. but. And that's kind of where we left things. Right. But here's the thing. I, I
0: got I to gotta suggest something for you. Okay. That'll help. I think. And that is, this, you should do what I did a long, long time ago. I was on a meditation course.
1: And you read an entire book about accounting. Exactly. I've done that. Well, there you go. I forgot it all immediately. I also took accounting for lawyers. I forgot all of that immediately. <laughs> I also have done a lot of M&A deals. I haven't forgotten all of that stuff, but I have learned exactly what I need to know for the deal. And I can do that. And I can't do anything else.
0: Well, maybe the book that you got was too thick. The one that I got was only three-eighths of an inch thick, including yeah, two right. hard covers. It's the book's fault. It's the book's fault. You need the little tiny, thin one that just covers the basics of financial statements. It doesn't have to teach you to do double-entry accounting. It just has to teach you the basics of financial statements. Income statement, balance sheet, cash flow.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've learned those things multiple times.
0: Okay, so we're good there. <laughs>
1: Like I said, like I can learn what I need to know. Yeah, it's when you start getting into judgment calls that I start getting really nervous.
0: Well, let's let's do an easier one then. than Chipotle for starters.
1: No, well, we've been promising Chipotle to everybody for like I don't for years. It feels like I know.
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna put it off again.
1: Oh my god! I'm gonna take I'm us. I'm sorry, everybody. I'm gonna
0: take us into the 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 this, this sort of famous iconic lemonade stand.
1: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: We're going to go do a lemonade stand.
1: All right, I'm going to go with it.
0: Fine. So I want you to write these numbers down. It gets me
1: away from the Chipotle numbers. Write these numbers down.
0: Okay, so here you go. You ready? All right, I'm ready. Okay, we we got the lemonade stand.
1: Wait, am I starting over completely? Because I have my little Chipotle sheet here.
0: Start over. Lemonade stand. Take a note. Okay, lemonade stand. We have... We've been in business, and we have sales of $10.
1: Cool. Let's
0: write that down. Sales of $10.
1: Sales, colon.
0: $10.
1: $10.
0: Okay. All right. Now, we have the cost of goods sold, which is the cost of the sugar, the lemons, anything we had to pay for the water, um, and the labor to make the lemonade, Lots, which is a little bit. Some we got a friend who we're paying a nickel an hour or something. Um, any advertising we've done, we're going to put into this, um, and that's about it. We're going to we're going to just do those things for cost of goods sold. And the accountants who are in the audience, don't send me any nasty letters because I got one of these in the wrong place. It's close enough. We're going to say that pile of stuff that it cost us to make the lemonade that we sold for ten dollars cost three dollars. So write down, cost of goods sold, $3. Got it. Okay. Now, what you got left is called gross profit. Yep. Which is how much? Seven. $7 gross profit. Very good. Now we're going to subtract from that our general and administrative expenses. So general and administrative expenses are our phones and our office and everything we got. And we're going to say that general administrative expenses um, are a dollar. Okay. Okay. Now, what we have left after that is what's called EBITDA. Mm -hmm. Write this down. E-B-I-T-D-A. EBITDA. And what it stands for is Earnings Before Interest, Taxes, Depreciation, and Amortization – None of which affect us with our eliminated stand. We don't have any of those expenses. Okay? So our EBITDA is... We don't
1: have interest or taxes?
0: We're not paying interest because we didn't borrow any money. And we're not paying taxes because we're a little kid. (laughs) We don't have any depreciation and amortization because... Because we don't own anything. We don't own anything. (laughs) We borrowed mom's squeezer. Okay? So what that means is our net earnings are, are $6. Okay. Okay, so EBITDA and net earnings in this case are the same thing. Net earnings are six dollars. All right. Now we have to do one more thing though. Mom is making us replace the squeezer because after a whole season of squeezing lemons, it eroded a little bit. So the squeezer part of the the juicer is two dollars, and we gotta replace that. Now that is a capital expense. Okay. So write that down. That is called purchase of property and equipment, P, and E, also known as a capital expenditure. Now, the reason that that's not just part of our expenses is because there are things like juicer parts that are going to last several years, also machinery like uh, factory machines might last several years, and a truck that you buy or railroad equipment and railroad tracks. Anything that lasts more than a year for tax purposes cannot be expensed. And so you have to consider it. The purchase of property and equipment.
1: Question. Yes, ma'am. Do we then own that juicer or are we just buying it for mom?
0: Well, that little thing we own. Okay. That's part so of it. So now our, we own something. We own something.
1: Wait, was that $2? $2. Okay.
0: Okay. All right, so let's walk through our three financial statements here. Okay. Well, the most important one for our purposes right now is the income statement, right? The income statement has two lines on it we need to pay attention to. The first one is the sales line, which in this case is $10. And the second line is net earnings, which in this case is?
1: Ah, I lost it. It's $6.
0: $6. Very good. So we're going to look for four numbers here. Sales, earnings, cash flow, and uh, book value. Okay. The first two are on the income statement. The next one is cash flow. Cash flow, in this case, excuse me, is the net earnings on the company, which is how much? $6. $6. So the top line on a cash flow statement is the net earnings of the company.
1: Okay.
0: Then we're going to add back into that anything we didn't actually pay cash for. So back into that goes depreciation, amortization, um, changes in working capital, all that stuff. In this case, our top line is uh, $6 on our cash flow. And then the next important line is all of those things that we don't have, depreciation and so on, um, added to the cash, to the net earnings, and we end up with a line called operating cash. Operating cash. So cash, or also known as cash from operations. So now, if you are not a public company and you're just doing standard accounting, not accrual accounting, you don't have to worry about any of this stuff, your cash flow statement is going to look pretty close to your profit and loss, your, your income statement. But public companies have to do a separate statement called a cash flow in order to reconcile their earnings statement with their actual bank accounts, the money that's actually in the bank. Now, in your case, you got earnings of $6, and you have operating cash of also $6 because you don't have anything in working capital or, or depreciation, amortization. In other words, all of the money you spent for expenses was all the cash you spent, Got except it. the one thing. You see anything in there that we spent any money on that's not in your expenses? The juicer. Exactly, the juicer part. Now, under operating cash, which is $6, there's a line called purchase of property and equipment. Mm,
1: mm-hmm
0: where you will subtract the money you spent on stuff that you couldn't expense off. And in this case it's two dollars. Okay. All right. Now what's left from this is what we call free cash flow.
1: And um, is that that's on the cash flow statement?
0: Yep. Well it's not actually. Oh. It's not an actual gap accounting measure. We have to figure it out ourselves. But it's probably the single Most important thing we can know about a company is what's the cash flow if we're looking to value the business. What is the cash flow? And we'll see how we use that as we go along. So free cash flow in this company is $6 of operating cash minus the $2 that they had to spend to stay in business. And you're left with $4 of free cash flow.
1: I'm writing down not on cash flow statement.
0: Not on cash flow statement. Because
1: I know that I will spend 20 minutes trying to find it, and then thinking that I've gone insane.
0: That's right. Now, this okay. number is tracked by a lot of tracking, you know, a lot of companies that track the the numbers from uh, public corporations, and you can look it up. What's the free cash flow in a company? But you need to know how they calculate it because it's not on a GAAP accounting statement. So this company has four dollars of free cash. Now. What we gotta do is figure out what would be the value of this business if it's got ten dollars of sales, six dollars of earnings, and four dollars of free cash. Can we figure out what this company's worth? And the answer is, well, it depends. And what it depends on is, what is the growth of this company? Are, are we gonna have those numbers every year, or are those numbers gonna grow, or are those numbers going down? Because ultimately, if I'm going to buy this lemonade company, I want to pay a price that reflects, that gives me a discount to the cash that I'm going to collect on it into Mm -hmm. the future. Mm -hmm. In fact, the only real value of a business, the only kind of objective value of a business, there's lots of subjective values, right? Of employing people, of providing for a community to have a vibrant community of growth, um, getting something into the world that's solving a problem—these are all the reasons people start businesses. But ultimately, the value of the business, you know, what somebody else would pay for it, certainly is influenced by some of those things. But ultimately, the value is about how much cash is that going to produce over the life of this business, and what would I be willing to pay for that today? That's how businesses are, are valued.
1: Well, those first, those other kinds of values are subjective values this value is just it's just a number it's
0: just yep it's just an objective value. number now there are some things that go into figuring out this objective number and one of those things is the growth rate of the free cash and the earnings what's the growth of cash and what's the growth of earnings oh yeah and what's the growth of the sales so all those things go into it now we notice by the way that on this free cash statement that If we don't do anything else at all with this company, we don't borrow any money, we don't distribute any money to the owners, we don't give away the free cash, then that $4 of free cash, that's gonna go into the equity of the company. Mm -hmm. That'll go on our balance sheet. Mm -hmm. And now the equity of the company is $4. So now we have four numbers. We have sales number, earnings number, a cash, free cash number, And an equity number, also known as book value. Okay. All right, so we got four numbers. Now, we need to know, in order to know what to pay for this business, whether those numbers are going to go up in the future, or they're going to go down in the future, or they're going to stay the same. So one fun way to think about this, one easy way to get at this, I don't know if you (laughs) think this is fun. I think this is fun
1: fun. I mean, it's taking me back to my accounting class in law school, which by the way, I did very well in. I'm, like I'm saying, I can learn I'm this so stuff. I'm of you that you did it that. Just, it just goes yeah. away as soon as I don't use it. It's like right. it never happened, but I can learn it. So yeah, like it's, you know, it's relatively easy once you go through the process. So now what
0: I would do is I would make a note on my notes and I would say, okay, I'm going to have a line for sales So I have a row for sales, a row for earnings, a row for free cash flow, and a row for book value. All right. And I've got a sales number of 10, earnings number of 6, free cash flow of 4, and book value of 4.
1: Would free free cash flow and book value ever be different?
0: Yeah, they're usually different because book value is a number that's accruing over time. Uh, Like in other words, if we did the same numbers next year, we would have another column that would say $10 of sales, $6 of earnings, $4 of free cash flow, and $8 of book value. Got it, okay. All right. And then the next year, the third year, let's say we just did exactly the same numbers, $10 of sales, $6 $6 of earnings, $4 of free cash flow, and $8, sorry, and now $12 of book value. Now you notice we must be spending $2 on something every year for purchasing property and equipment like that that, that item in the you know the squeezer. Yeah. In the juicer.
1: The juicer. Right.
0: <laughs> so what we have now, after several years of this, we might start to conclude that this company has no growth of sales. It has no growth of earnings. It has no growth of free cash. But its book value is growing really fast, right? It's growing really, really fast. It doubled in one year and then it went up 50% the next year. And if we kept going like that, it'd be up another uh, to $16 the fourth year. So it'd be up 30% or whatever that is.
1: But I mean, that growth rate is going down every year because... True.
0: Because it's getting bigger.
1: As um, As it goes year over year, it's the same amount of free cash going in.
0: Yep. So
1: Look at me with the growth rate Pretty race.
0: good. So now, if we wanted to figure out what's this business worth to us,
1: mm-hmm.
0: we could start to realize that what we were going to get out of this business every year is on that free cash flow line. See that? Yeah. If this just keeps going every year the way it is, we're not going to get to keep $10. That's just our sales number. We're not going to get to keep the earnings because we have to pay for equipment that's broken.
1: Pay for stuff.
0: Pay for stuff. And then we do get to keep the free cash, which is $4 a year. So if we see this every year like this, we could figure, oh, wow, this thing is making $4 a year every single year. Now, how much would we pay for a business that was consistently making $4 a year?
1: Well, you would have to find out what typical lemonade stands go for. But I would say between... 5 and 10x of that?
0: Well, let's just say that this is the only the only lemonade stand on the planet Some for some reason. We can't go look at comps per se. We just got to figure it out based on the cash flow coming off this business. So let's take a look at that. If you put up, let's just pick a number. I don't know, what you said between would you say 5 and Between 10 Between
1: 5 and 10. I mean there's some industries where companies go for 12x, you know. Some where they go below 5 but not much.
0: Well, let's take a look at the top number there. You said you'd maybe pay as an just a way of getting at this, maybe you would pay 10 times earnings. 10 times earnings or 10 times cash?
1: Um earnings, right? Earnings I think.
0: Depends, yeah. You could say earnings, maybe.
1: I would say it's usually like seven or eight times EBITDA.
0: Okay, seven or eight times EBITDA, not bad. So EBITDA, in our case, was the same as earnings, right? Right. Okay. So let's just say 10 times EBITDA. So let's say that you would pay, since EBITDA or earnings is $6, you might be willing to pay $60 for this business. I might be. Yeah. So let's take a look at somebody who was buying the business And was willing to pay $60 for it. So, the first question you would have is, and by the way, we're assuming you don't have to work or anything. This is a passive investment. Somebody else is managing the whole thing. So, the first thing we notice is that how long would it take you to get your money back if you paid $60 for it?
1: It would take a while because you're getting four bucks a year.
0: You're getting four a year. So, we divide four into 60, and we see it would take uh, 15 years. To get your money back.
1: Seems like a long time.
0: Now now we're getting at it. It seems like a long time. And it is a long time. I mean, do you really want to wait for 15 years to get your money back before you start making any money on this business? No. No. Me neither. (laughs) Okay. So this is quite helpful because it turns out that a business like this, which isn't very liquid, right? It's a private business. If you buy it, you own it. You can't just sell it the next day. So it turns out that private businesses like this, it turns out that buyers are usually willing to pay something like around seven and a half to eight years worth of earnings.
1: Of earnings, though? Well, well of, and the well, number me, you just did of was cash free... flow. Excuse me. But you're right that it's usually earnings. Well, That's my experience as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you have to really be aware of how important cash flow is compared to earnings. We fall into a little bit of a trap to be thinking in terms of earnings, which are sort of fictional, versus cash, which is what's in the bank. And we got to be careful about that. So a lot of times the cash flow is less than the earnings. Sometimes it's more, right? And ideally, we'd love to buy a business where the cash flow is actually higher than your earnings, so let's just start a How good you habit. Have
1: more cash flow than what the company earned.
0: Oh, well, real estate's a classic for producing that. In fact, real estate is so classic they have their own kind of accounting system set up because the depreciation is kind of fictional.
1: Oh, it's through all the depreciation exactly. and fancy accounting stuff. Exactly.
0: That's so you're. It. You're busy writing off 5% of the whole price of your building every year, and it's actually going up in value. Got it. So you turn out to have more cash flow than you do earnings. So in this particular case, we can pretty well say that, that in terms of private business sales, that the history of private business sales has been that there's around seven or eight years worth of cash flow to buy a business. would be about right. People are willing to wait seven or eight years. They tend to not be willing to wait 15 years. So if you've got a business that's not growing, then the amount of cash you've got per year times eight is probably close to what it would be worth. So
1: you're using the cash flow number for this. Yeah. Is that your own method? Because that's not the way I typically hear about it.
0: I know. It is...
1: I just want to be clear on what's if this is a different, like, rule number one trademarked style method, or is this... What well, this is
0: do. Warren Buffett 101. Okay. At the end of the day, you can't spend earnings. You can only spend cash. And a lot of businesses have very good earnings, but pour almost all of the earnings back into the business every year to change the machinery in the, in the or to do something to keep it all going. Mm-hmm. And they can't actually use the earnings to grow the business, much less be able to give any to the owners. So what Buffett looks for is what he calls owner's cash flow, and he does a bit of a different analysis. Ours is close enough for this work. It doesn't have to be that tied down to the nickel. But it's basically what kind of cash flow am I gonna get off of this as an owner? That's what he cares about. And that's what you should care about too. Think of it, whenever you're buying any company or any piece of real estate, what cash am I getting as an owner after I pay for all of the things I gotta pay for to keep this building you know, maintained and and managed to keep this business maintained and managed.
1: And what's left
0: is owner cash flow.
1: Yeah, got it.
0: So we want to spend on a private company about seven or eight times owner cash flow or less. That's what Charlie Munger would call a fair price. So when Charlie says, I want a wonderful business at a fair price, he means a fair price for a private business. Now, we might be willing to pay more than that if the company's growing its cash flow, right? Because if it's growing its cash flow, let's take our lemonade stand, for example. Year one, we have $4, but the year two, we have five, and year three, we have six, and year four, we have eight, and year five, we have 10. And so now we've got 19, 27, we got $33 instead of $20. Mm-hmm. that's come back into our pocket. So we could certainly pay more for a business that's going to give us $33 in five years than one that's going to give us $20 in five years.
1: Yeah, got it.
0: Right? Yeah. But when we factor the growth rate in, it turns out it's still eight years. We still want to pay about eight years. We'll pay more, but we'll still get our money back in eight years. Does that make sense? No. Okay, let's say we pay, <laughs> Let's say we paid $4 times. I mean, eight. I
1: understand the concept that it's growing. Right. But but how does that mean that you pay the same amount?
0: Well, we 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 pay the same amount in terms of the number of years before we get our money back. So watch this. Our business, the first one, um, we paid $32 for 8 times 4. Okay. Okay. So year 1 we get back $4 and we have $28 that we haven't gotten back. Year two, we get back $4, we got $24 we haven't gotten back. Year three, we have $20 we haven't gotten back. Year four, 16. Year five, 12. Year six, we have eight. Year seven, we have four. And year eight, we have zero. Okay, now let's pay, let's get our $33 business here. Um, Let's pay a higher rate. Now we've gotta pay a little bit more. I'm gonna just kinda guess at what that might be. So if we paid $32 for our $4 of growth there, let's say we pay ballpark, um, let's see, let's pay...
1: So the years, I'm just going to say while you're looking at that, are $4 and then $5 and then $6 and then $8 and and then $10. $10.
0: Yep. So I'm just going to kind of pick a number and see how it comes out here. Let's say we're willing to pay for this business that the other one was $32. Let's say we're willing to pay $40 for this business. Okay. All right? And this business... That's not much more. Not a lot more. Let's see how this works out. This business, after one year, we have 36 left. Uh, after two years, we have 31 left. After three years, we have 25. After four years, we have 17 After five years we have seven. And after six years, we have zero. So So we paid. Yeah, we paid forty dollars for this, but this thing is paid off in six years. The other one was paid off in eight. So even though we paid more, we got a better deal. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So we could let's say we paid fifty. We could probably pay 50 for that and still have a payback time of eight years. Okay, got it. All right. So this idea of of figuring out how long it's going to be before you have your money back is the way that a lot of private equity and venture capitalists look at what they're doing out there because they're not liquid. They're not, the company's not public and you can't just sell it tomorrow. You have to hold on to it and you have to look at getting your risk off the table. And that's how they see it. So when we start to see it the same way, then we're starting to think like Buffett and Munger who see no reason why they should pay a premium for a public company.
1: Yeah, because with a private company, depending on what it is, it can be very hard to get out of it any other way besides just receiving that cash flow.
0: Exactly. So, so I think that's... But
1: with a public company, that's obviously not true.
0: With a public company, a whole different kettle of fish, right?
1: Right. So Which is much why so... why public companies tend to trade for higher multiples.
0: Much higher. So a public company that isn't growing much might trade for a multiple of 10 or 11 or 12. Times earnings And on the average, the S&P 500, which grows at about 5% a year on, on average, has a 15 multiple times its earnings. Hmm. And that's because it's got a little bit of growth, but also because it's liquid and you can sell it quickly. So let's stop right there and then talk about how growth rates influence our decision about what the value of that future cash will be. And we'll work through another way of looking at the business. So this way of looking at value, we call the payback time. Okay. And an eight-year or less payback time is pretty good. We consider that a kind of on-sale deal. That's a fair price if we can get it on free cash flow.
1: Eight years or less equals good payback time.
0: Yep. And that makes sense. We put money into a business, and eight years later we own it free and clear. That would be okay. All right, cool. You know
1: what? The lemonade stand works for me. <laughs> I'm I so like glad. it. I like All it right. much more than Chipotle.
0: <laughs> All right, very good. Well, we, we've dodged a bullet then. So let's come back to the lemonade stand and see if we can't figure out another way of looking at the value. You
1: know, everybody's listening to this going, I just need to know if I should invest in Chipotle or not. <laughs> like, can you guys stop at this lemonade stand crap? <laughs> Sorry, guys.
0: Sorry, guys. <laughs>
1: We're, We're gonna not going to tell it.
0: you if you should invest in Chipotle or exactly. not. Exactly. <laughs> We're going to keep at this and then you're going to be able to figure out whether you should invest in Chipotle. If you want to be a rule one type investor. So, until next time. All right. Time to go play.
1: Bye everybody.
0: See ya. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested the Rule 1 podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop. For details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting, all you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code stockpile, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, stockpile, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only. And I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.